America has lost its way, and America will fall unless. Hello, and welcome back to the God Story podcast. I'm Brent Siddle. I'm joined once again by my co-host, the Reverend Ian Reid Rido from Kings Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston North, New Zealand. And we're joined by our very special guest on the show today, Oz Guinness, who joins us again to talk about his latest book from IVP America called Zero Hour America, History's Ultimatum Over Freedom and the Answer We Must Give. Oz is the author or editor of more than 30 books, the founder of the Trinity Forum, a prominent social critic and a frequent speaker who has addressed audiences worldwide. And Oz joins us now. Hi, Oz. How are you? I'm well, and what a pleasure to be with you. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you have you back with us, sir, after the last time. It was fascinating. Now, this, this is a fascinating book. Um, I've got to say, I was greatly intrigued. Can I ask you why and how America has lost its way? Well, almost anyone following where the U.S. is, and I'm speaking to you from Washington, D.C., everyone knows the deep polarization. America's more deeply divided today than at any moment since just before the Civil War. But why? Some blame the social media, some blame a former president, some say it's the so-called coastals, California and New York, against the heartlanders, some say it's populists and nativists over against the George Soros-style um, globalists. And my answer is all those play a part. But they're not the deepest reason. The deepest reason is America's divided between those who understand the American Republic and freedom from the perspective of the French Revolution and those whose ideas actually come from the perspective, sorry, of the American Revolution first and then the French Revolution. So if you look at America, postmodernism, the sexual revolution, identity politics, the cancel culture, run down the list. All those ideas come from the heirs of the French Revolution, not the American. So America's deeply divided. And yet no one addresses it as Abraham Lincoln did just before the Civil War. And that's my argument to Americans. Where is the leader who will do it? Mm. Can America prevent its fall, do you think? Of course. You know, we as, uh, as for, I'm a follower of Jesus. At the heart of the Christian faith is the idea of renewal, supremely seen in the resurrection itself. But we're, what, we're at what's called a civilizational moment. In other words, civilization in New Zealand and Australia are part of the Western world too. Civilizations have a moment when they lose touch, or they nearly do, with what made them themselves. And there's no question that Western civilization grew out of the Jewish and Christian faiths, and yet they've been rejected. So in a civilizational moment, you've got three choices. You renew what made it great, you replace what made it great by something else, or you decline. And as you know well, if you look at the 10 or so major civilizations, none of them last forever, and the West won't either. So at some point, it's gonna go down. And the same is true of America. No free society has ever lasted free forever. And the Americans thought they had a system that could do that, but they've abandoned the system. So decline is not necessary, but you've got to look what makes freedom possible 
and what are the requirements to keep it going? Yes, in what ways are we being are we seeing freedoms being suppressed in the states today, and indeed we could say in New Zealand as well, or anywhere in the West? Well, you can see everything on the radical left eventually comes down against the three basic freedoms: freedom of conscience and religion, freedom of speech, and freedom of assembly. And you can see, for example, in America, it's a huge amount of discussion about the combination of some of the bureaucracies like the FBI and the Department of Justice allied with the high tech, say Facebook or Google, and just censoring people's right to speak. And that's extremely dangerous, not just the denial of speech, but when you have the government tied in with groups like Facebook and Google, you know, that becomes extremely dangerous. Has America became, become captured by an oligarchy? That's part of my argument. And for a long time, you've had scholars like Angelo Codovia who said, this is what's happening. So I think one of the ironic achievements of President Trump is that by speaking for what he called the forgotten people, he's given voice to the populists. And their skepticism at all sorts of levels with the elites, the experts who know best. I mean, Hillary Clinton describing other people as the basket of deplorables or President Obama about those people who cling to their God and their guns and, and so on. You can see a growing gap in America between the elite and ordinary people. And that's extremely dangerous. I was saying today to someone, a Christian leader who was attacking the anti-intellectualism of the popular movements, I said, you know, you look in the scripture, a great leader like Moses is the teacher and the servant of the people. So you should never have leaders who disdain their people. Hillary Clinton's words were terrible. I'm not justifying President Trump. But America needs to heal that gap between the populists and the elite. Very dangerous. Yeah. Both Ian, to an oligarchy than to a democracy. Yes. Ian, your thoughts, comments, questions? Do you think um, the, the West has lost what it's for? So it's lost its, its understanding of its purpose uh, and kind of where, where it's heading. And because we've lost that, we just, we just don't know who we are anymore. Absolutely. And that was... What was the purpose is once rooted in the Christian faith, the gospel itself, but the whole of the scriptures. You take things like human dignity or an objective view of truth or a powerful view of words or a deep view of freedom and justice and peace. And all these things come from the Bible. And uh, what the Enlightenment did, the Enlightenment, I describe it as a parasite on the best of the Christian ideas and a protest against the worst of Christian behavior. So a key part of the Enlightenment is we don't want God because of what we've seen in the church. And you remember the cry of the French radicals, we'll never be free until we strangle the last king with the guts of the last priest. Now, as part of the secularist movement, the Enlightenment, is a powerful reaction against the worst of the church. And we need to confess before the Lord that much of the reaction against Christians, Christians have caused. What was the original American ideal or idea of freedom? Well, a lot of Americans, particularly secular ones, think it came from the Greeks, notions like democracy. And that's not true. 
the 17th century is called by scholars the biblical century because the Reformation idea sola scriptura from Luther, scripture alone, led to an incredible rediscovery of Hebrew as a language and, of course, the Hebrew Torah. And they discovered not just justification by faith, say in Galatians, but God's way of constituting a nation in Exodus and Deuteronomy. So Calvin, Zwingli, Bullinger, Knox, Cromwell. Cromwell says Exodus is the precedent he's trying to follow. Now, they did a lot of crazy things, including cutting off the king's head. But you can see that the 17th century was a welter of ideas trying to ransack the Hebrew Republic, in other words, Exodus, Deuteronomy, for ideas of the way God had founded a nation. And many of the modern political ideas come from that. So the consent of the governed, that's in Exodus. Separation of powers in Exodus. And you can go on down the line. Many, many Americans, many Westerners don't realize how much we owe to the rediscovery of the Old Testament. You write in your book, and I was fascinated by this expression, and we're all familiar with the idea of climate change, but you say that we are suffering from cultural climate change. Now, I, I love that phrase. Can you explain that for us? Cultural climate change. Well, climate change is obviously important, but it deals with the world outside us. Whereas cultural climate change, which is Rabbi Sachs' term, deals with what we're doing internally to ourselves. So I described three forces. You'd have to take a little longer to, to do them in depth. One, philosophical cynicism. Nothing is true. Nothing is decidable. Go on down the line. Well, if there's no truth, everything is only power. So philosophical cynicism, the whole of postmodernism. And then moral corruption, total topsy-turvy world of what's right, wrong, just, unjust, and so on today. And then the third one, social collapse through an erosion of ties. So the key idea of cultural climate change is the undermining of truth and the erosion of ties, the way, say, families are bound together. So who can trust anything? To have freedom, you need high truth and high trust. And when you have low truth or no truth and no trust, you have cynicism. You know, you say something, I'm suspicious. I don't know where you're coming from. You have an agenda because you're after some power play. So I've got to suspect you. And as Solzhenitsyn said, you get a citizenry whose only worldview is mistrust. Well, you can't have freedom in such a climate. No. How, how has American freedom been battered by moral relativism, do you well, think? Take this cultural climate change. You take, say, the horror of American mass murders, where more than four at once have been shot. School murders, for example. Now, the liberals will immediately say, what's the constant? Guns. All right. Ban guns and look for the red flag. No. The real constant is certainly guns. Guns are the how. They're not the why. The real constant in the school shootings is a fatherless loner trying to take it out on something in his family or his school, his community, or the nation. And all the stuff you see of people online, they've been into the dark corners of the internet, and there's a real nihilism. Now, with the radical revolution, you're trying to change society, but with the nihilists, you just want to destroy. 
And so actually you can see behind the mass shootings in America, the horror of this cultural climate change. And that's just one example. I wonder what happens to a society when truth dies? All sorts of things die with it. But I think the two things that matter most, when truth dies, all you have left is power. And that, of course, is what Nietzsche said in the 1880s. So in 2016, when The Economist said, we're in a post-truth world, and people have picked that up, they were a little late on the draw. And that's happened ever since the 1880s. But that's very dangerous. You can see someone like Michel Foucault, the, the radical thinker from France, everything analyzed in terms of power. Now, look at different, we've been talking about the Hebrew notion of covenant. The contrast in the early church, they were based on Rome. When the church was made the official religion of Rome, they copied Roman structures uncritically. What were Roman structures? Hierarchical, based on power. So you had a Caesar and consuls and senators, and you had in the church a pope and cardinals, and bishops. And it's a Catholic layman who was criticizing that, who made the very famous remark we all know, all power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So the major problem of postmodernism, the collapse of truth, is you only have power. That's absolutely deadly for free societies. Yes, let's come and talk all about freedom, because that's a large part of the book. And indeed, you have, I think, seven foundational aspects of freedom, don't you? We can't go through them all, but I, fa I found them all fascinating as I read through. Why, though, is the ability to make genuine choices at the heart of human freedom? Well, biblically, it just is. I mean, the original freedom was the freedom to do what we call the original sin. And you can see, though, that even after the fall, God counts on people's freedom. So Cain, thinking of doing dastardly deeds to his brother, the Lord says, it's at the door. You can choose, Cain. And he ignores the Lord and chooses badly. And it goes on down the line. You know, as biblically, God always takes humans made in his image as free and responsible for their choices. Now, that's important because our secularist friends, they have no grounding for freedom at all. And if you look at all the great atheist thinkers, Freud, Bertrand Russell, down to modern people like Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, they all believe in determinism. You know, Sam Harris's book on freedom has a puppet dangling on strings in the front cover. And some say it's psychological, some chemical, some this, some that, and some the other. The secularist view of humanity is deterministic. And actually, the Jewish and the and Christian view, the biblical view, is the only solid foundation for the glory of human freedom. Yes, and we have a, 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 a mis we misunderstand the concept of freedom, don't we, in the modern West? I, I think you, you write fascinatingly that freedom is not the permission to do what we like. Now, I think that's a critical point. What, what did you mean by that? Freedom is not the permission to do what we like. It's, well, the, the other half of that is the power to do what you ought. I mean, take a very simple example. You can put a three-year-old in front of a keyboard and say, you are free. 
and he or she will plunk their hands down and made the most horrendous, raucous noise. Now compare that with a great Ruben, Arthur Rubinstein or someone bringing the best out of a piano. He, he has learned the mastery of the piano. So freedom is like that. And the, the Greek word for, uh, for um, virtue, we think of virtue as sort of goody-goody. No. For the Greeks, it was habit, certainly, but it was a skill. So like someone who's trained and disciplined and is able to master music or painting or uh, football, whatever, the person who's free knows how to live as freedom requires. And freedom requires character. Freedom requires truth. Freedom requires a way of life that's the free way of life. And that, of course, is the biblical idea. And so when Paul says in the New Testament, for freedom, Christ has set us free. He's not just free to do whatever you like. No, as Augustine says, love God and do what you like. <laughs> but then you'll be living the way God wants you to live. Yes. Ian, responses, questions? No, I, th I think it's interesting um, in New Zealand, particularly here, that these, these concepts of freedom are actually racist, you know, kind of that – um, again, you know, using it as a, you know, kind of um, as a form of power, you know, kind of over people, and particularly over here, you can just see see the um, the eroding of democracy in light of that. Then that everything kind of gets drawn back to that that kind of concept that well, we need to strip our our culture away from these Western concepts because they're not universal concepts, and um, but they are universal concepts, aren't they? They're kind of they're, at the heart of who we are as human beings. Well, that's right. And there's all sorts of ways we're denying these things. But of course, remember, they come from Judaism. And Judaism is not white European. It's Asian and so on. So we've got to crack a lot of the nonsense. Or, or take another one. People say collectivism. Oh, these communists and socialists. But actually, Western liberalism has become highly collectivist now. So very few people are considered in, by themselves an individual, right or wrong or whatever. We're considered as white or male or, you know, this, that, or the other in terms of groups and sex and ethnicity and all these things. And so so-called progressivism is becoming highly illiberal. We've got to challenge all this nonsense, but it's all part and parcel of the radical left in, in terms of a cultural Marxism, not the old classical Marxism. Yes, and conformism seems to be the name of the game these days. Uh, you have to conform uh, to whom and to what, I ask. Why, what are we being asked to conform to and why? Yeah, no, they yeah. talk diversity and end up with uniformity. They talk freedom and end up with coercion. We, we've got to have the courage to stand against this woke nonsense and challenge it. Mm -hmm. and yeah. So a lot of here in America, a lot of people say to me, well, are you just trying to nostalgically recreate the past? No. If these ideas which we read in the scriptures are true, they are true and important for human dignity and freedom and justice for the human future. We're not just talking about the 17th century or something like that. We're talking about the 22nd century and on. We who are followers of Jesus, or I would broaden it with freedom, Jews and Christians standing together 
are the champions and guardians of the best way forward for humanity. Here's a question for you, Oz. Why does being free require respect for the equal freedom of others? Well, if it's just my freedom, I'll just be exercising my power. But if, if freedom is something that God has given to everybody, a right for one is automatically a right for another, and the responsibility of both to make sure that happens. Now, the more people you have, you've got three people, relatively easy to figure out what freedom is. You're not standing on each other's toes. If you've got three million or 300 million, you've got to work much harder to see that you have freedom for everybody and you're not all clashing with each other. In other words, the challenge of freedom never stops and we've got to negotiate it in every generation, but it has to be mutual. Take, say, the horror of American slavery you know, at the time in 1776, Samuel Johnson, uh, the creator of the first dictionary, he said, how is it that those who are yelping about freedom, he was talking about the Declaration of Independence, are the drivers of Negroes? That was, that's his word, grossly hypocritical, contradictory, evil. And you could see it an ocean away. But for various power reasons, you needed the Southern states and their compromise to pass the Constitution, they didn't tackle it. And it's a tragedy of American history. In other words, they denied the mutuality, the universality of freedom. A right for the whites is a right for the blacks and everyone else too. To what extent is our freedom or any freedom founded on a belief in and obedience to God? Put it like that, it sounds like a new form of coercion. But I love the old Anglican prayer, whose service is perfect freedom. Mm. You know, there's a very interesting thing, and I didn't even do justice to this in the book. There's no word for freedom in the main part of Exodus. It's obviously all about freedom, deliverance from slavery, etc., etc., etc. But there's no word for freedom used. And the Jews point out, Moses says, let my people go to serve and worship me. In other words, the constant stress is they've been serving Pharaoh, which was bondage and slavery, and now they go not just to be free in some autonomous sense, no, to serve the Lord whose service is perfect freedom. Or put it <laughs> down to earth terms, you think of Bob Dylan, slow train coming. You've got to serve somebody. Yeah, yeah. And that's what modern people forget. Everyone will serve someone. The question is, is the one who's the master, the truth in your life, someone whose mastery leads you to deeper fulfillment and genuine freedom and so on, or another form of slavery? Okay, well, we've discussed freedom and some of the things that have gone wrong in the States and elsewhere in the West. What do we need to do, Oz? Where do we go from here? What, what are some of the things you suggest in the book, practical things that we need to recover? Well, living here in America, we need leadership. I mentioned Lincoln before the Civil War. There's no one comparable. I've talked to CEOs for the last 10, 15 years and asked scores of them, who speaks for you? at the national level, and not a single one has said one. There's a huge dearth of leadership. My wife and I pray daily for that, and that's true certainly in Britain. I 
can't speak for you in New Zealand. I don't know the situation well enough now. As, as I, uh, quote, quoting from somebody in a, in a popular political program, I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> okay. My catch in the neck if you did. Yeah, but that, in other words, by that I mean leaders define reality and they lead their people. That's what we need. Someone will say where the West is, where America is, Britain is, New Zealand is, Australia, whatever, where we are and where we should be. And in all the great crises, we are needing things that are foundational in Scripture. I mean, a huge one here in America is words, obviously under the impact of the social media. On the one hand, American advertising has cheapened words. You use incredible words to sell the most banal things. Advertising is cheapened words, and politics is weaponized words. That's very dangerous. Now, you look in the scripture, words create worlds, and words can destroy worlds. And there's a word evil speech in the Torah, which the Jews say is tantamount to murder. So take someone like former President Trump. Many of his policies were good. His use of words, his insults to people, were what the Jewish and the scriptures would say are evil speech. Christians didn't tackle that. In other words, we just do whatever other people do. No, if American freedom, probably other nations too, has to start with a reform of words, a reintroduction of truth. Mm. Last question. How great a threat do you think globalism, if I can put it like that, whatever we mean by globalism, globalization, loss of, of local control, how great a threat do you think that is to modern freedom, to the freedom of the West or to the West generally? An enormous threat, but we've got to start by saying what we mean. Mm. In other words, globalization is a process the interconnection of the worlds at higher and higher, deeper and deeper levels. That's gone on for centuries. You think of missionaries contributing to globalization. Um, the spread of empires did, spread of technology, steamships. So globalization is nothing wrong. And if we think globalism uh, is different, globalism, not globalization, is a philosophy. Those who want to use the globalized world uh, at the expense of the local for their own profit and so on. Now, that's dangerous. In the old days, nations used to threaten the local. Now, the global threatens both nations and the local. Think of, say, outsourcing and the rust belts and so on. So we've got to have a view of the world that balances the freedom of the local and the importance of the nation along with the global at the same time. And there's a huge amount of confusion. But you can see, say, from H.G. Wells, writing about 1900, he talks about a global republic and one world government, what he calls cosmocracy. Dreadful idea. <laughs> you can see a lot of that in terms of George Soros or uh, Klaus Schwab at Davos and so on, and the fears of one world government. But we can't just react against it. You need a healthy view of the global the national, and the local. And I love that. I've got a section on that in the book. You have, yes. A very good section too. Yes, made me think. Ian, final questions, comments before we go? 
Oz, how do you think the gospel compels us both to ha- both to have hope uh, in Christ's rule for the future, but also to act right now in the the regions and the you know the the families and the communities that we're involved in mm-hmm. around around us? Mm-hmm. Well, I think we're called to be realists. We know what sin is and how it affects the world. So we should always be able to look reality in the white of the eye. But in the light of the gospel, have the confidence of hope. And at the end of the day, hope is messianic. In other words, the Old Testament and the New look forward to a day when humans can't do it and God himself will step in in terms of the Messiah. And that's a wonderful hope. So we should be people of incredible realism and hope. Now, take a a very practical, simple example. If you look at, I mentioned the decline of the West, all the great writers on Western decline, like Arnold Toynbee or Peter M. Sorokin at Harvard, they all point out that the critical element in a civilization, both its rise and its fall, is what they call a creative minority. So a civilization is not made by everyone doing the thing right. No, no, a creative minority makes it. And if a creative minority fails, the civilization declines. Now, the descriptions of that fit the church perfectly. Mm. We're called to be a counterculture. We're called to be salty and light-bearing and so on. So if we look at the things the Lord has called us to do, and above all, the notion of calling in following him faithfully, you can see that we should be incredibly hopeful today because it fits the bill of that challenge for a, a creative minority that even in dark days can make an incredible difference. Yes, thinking of the monks who preserve things on Iona and uh, other such civilizational uh, people who, who basically preserved civilization when it was falling apart. Oz Skinnis, thank you so much, sir. Always a great pleasure to talk to you. And the book, which is fabulous, I think, it's called Zero Hour America, History's Ultimatum Over Freedom and the Answer We Must Give, uh, is published by IVP America. And thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge, who sponsor this podcast and take care of things behind the scenes. And thanks, as always, to my co-host, Rido, the Reverend Ian Reid, from King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston North, New Zealand. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. A real privilege to be with you. Uh, the privilege is ours, sir. Thank you so much. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash Podcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash Podcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.